Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. We are embarking on a very special mini-series here at Breakpoints on our favorite topic, which is, wait for it, Breakpoints. So we have leaders and experts from two breakpoint setting organizations, the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute, or CLSI, and the United States Committee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, or USCAS, and they are going to teach us everything we need to know about how we interpret whether or not we can use certain antimicrobials to treat our patients. This is a five-episode series, and first we're going to talk about what are breakpoints and what is the philosophy behind these two organizations, and then we'll get into four different categories of bug-drug combos with piperacillin and tazobactam, the aminoglycosides, the fluoroquinolones, and then we'll round out with some odd bug-drug combos for some of our non-fermenters like stenotrophomonas and acinetobacter. We are going to be focusing only on antibacterials. So if you want more information on antifungal susceptibility testing, you can check out episode 64, which aired in September of 2022. And on that episode, we, we deep dive into some nuances surrounding fungal susceptibility testing. But all right, let's introduce our speakers. So first, Dr. Mike Satlin, who's an infectious diseases physician and the clinical director of transplant oncology infectious diseases at Cornell Medicine. Dr. Satlin's research interests are in the spaces of epidemiology, diagnosis and treatment of multidrug-resistant gram-negative bacterial infections, particularly in immunocompromised hosts. And related to today's discussion, he is currently the co-chair of the Breakpoint Working Group of the CLSI Subcommittee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, and he participates on multiple committees with the ARLG. So Mike, welcome to Breakpoints. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Next, we have Dr. Jim Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the Clinical Supervisor for Infectious Diseases at Oregon Health and Science University. His responsibilities include co-directing the OHSU Antibiotic Stewardship Program and serving as the Infectious Diseases Clinical Pharmacist for OHSU. His professional interests are antimicrobial susceptibility testing, antibiotic and antifungal utilization, and the optimal integration of rapid microbiology diagnostics in antibiotic stewardship. Dr. Lewis previously served as the co-chair of the Breakpoint Working Group of the CLSI, and now he's the chair, very fancy, of the CLSI AST subcommittee. So Jim, welcome. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for the invitation. And last but certainly not least is Dr. Jason Pogue. So Dr. Pogue is a clinical professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy and an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Michigan Medicine. Dr. Pogue's research interests focus on the epidemiology and management of infections due to multidrug-resistant organisms, particularly in the gram-negative space and all things antimicrobial stewardship. He is a past president of SIDP and the chair of the executive committee of USCAS, so quite breakpoints royalty we have here. Jason, welcome. Uh, hi there, and thanks for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. Thanks, guys. And for this week's iteration of our mini-series, we are going to be talking about all things piperacillin, tazobactam. And so for those of you listening, you may have seen recently that the CLSI M100 just came out, which was updated, which did have a big focus on a lot of changes, one of those in particular, the new breakpoints for piperacillin tazobactam for both Enterobacterialis and for Pseudomonas. USCAST is also focusing on this bug drug combination, 
and they are updating their breakpoints as well. And so today we're going to talk all about that and learn exactly what you need to know about this very commonly used antibiotic. So let's start with the CLSI perspective, and then we'll talk about USCAST. And I want to know before we talk about the changes, what is the previous breakpoint and how did that get set? Why were we operating where we were operating before these changes occurred for both Enterobacterialis and Pseudomonas? So Jim, do you want to tell us what the CLSI historic breakpoint was before this change? Yeah, so basically there have been a couple iterations, Aaron, and the original, I believe, was around 1992, if I believe correctly, and initially the susceptibility range went all the way up to 64, and, you know, I think it was it was recognized in the early to mid-2000s that we were starting to see reports of clinical failures. Vincent Tam, I believe, was one of the lead authors on one of the early papers that really kind of showed that pseudomonas isolates, you know, being pulled out of patients with MICs of 32 or 64 were uh, not resulting in the outcomes we any of us would have liked. And so that data, as well as improvements in understanding of some of the PKPD constructs, basically led to the reduction of the breakpoint for susceptibility down to 16 from the aforementioned 64. It's also important to note that that 64 was also built around the assumption that the drug would be used in combination. You know, so there had always kind of been some thought that that 64 with Piptazo as monotherapy was probably not the best move ever. But those data, the patient safety signals, the better understanding of the PKPD constructs led the susceptible breakpoint to be decreased to 16 in, I believe, 2012. The intermediate range, though, remained in the 32 to 64. And so basically, we kind of continued to percolate along with further understanding of PKPD constructs and whatnot, and some further evolutions of the data that led to a reevaluation of this breakpoint, which dropped it now down to 16. And then basically, you have an intermediate only at 32, and then resistant is now 64 or higher, and that's for pseudomonas. And again, I think the other thing, and this is going to be one of the things that I think our listeners really need to understand, is that there are dose recommendations tied to those breakpoints. I think it's really important that folks understand that, you know, using the current PKPD constructs, you absolutely have to understand what dose those breakpoints are built around. Thanks, Jim. I think that's a really important point. We'll talk about the dosing recommendations when we talk about the updated breakpoints, but the dosing for the old breakpoints for um, Enterobacter Alice was 3.375, for Pseudo was 4.5. Right. Jason, U.S. cast perspective, are there current or operating Piptazo breakpoints, or is this something the organization is working on setting actively now? Yeah, it's the latter. We did not have a previous version, um, and we are uh, setting it right now. And actually, I would encourage our listeners to take a look at our website. Um, we are in the open comment period for what we're about to talk about. So please take a look and give us feedback. Yes. And if you guys listened to last week's episode, episode one, there's a lot of information in there about how you can volunteer and get involved with both of these organizations. We truly do want your input. So definitely check that out. You can comment at any time on those. Okay, so let's talk about the change, what we're here today to, to discuss. So, Mike, maybe you can start us with the CLSI perspective. What is the proposed change for PIP-TAZO for both Enterobacterialis and Pseudomonas? 
and why are these changes occurring? And maybe for ease of our listeners to walk through this, maybe let's talk about Enterobacter alice from the CLSI and the USCAS perspective, and then we'll talk about Pseudomonas from the CLSI and the UCAS perspective. So PIP, TASO, Enterobacter alice breakpoint, CLSI, ready, go. So the susceptible breakpoint was lowered from 16 to 8. 16 is now susceptible dose dependent, meaning that interpretation is based on a different dosage, a higher dosage, and actually also exposure because it's really based on prolonged infusion. And then anything 32 or greater is now considered resistant. So that differs from the 16, 32 to 64, 128 breakpoints that previously existed. And uh, I just want to comment, this all is predicated on a constant concentration of tazobactam, okay, which is relevant for enterobacterolis, not really for pseudomonas. So that's a, the constant uh, concentration of tazobactam, and the testing is four. And that's based on data from, that I think it goes back to 1992, essentially showing that a constant amount of tazobactam can better differentiate susceptible and resistant isolates compared to using a fixed concentration, which is a little bit counterintuitive since, of course, we dose the medicine as a fixed ratio of eight to one. But the real reason why this sort of came to our attention was the Merino trial. So I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar with the Merino trial. Essentially, in this trial, patients with ceftriaxone-resistant E. coli and a little bit of Klebsiella pneumonia were randomized to Piptazo or Mirapenem, and the patients randomized Piptazo had triple the mortality. So that was the signal that maybe we need to take a look at this. And uh, I think all of us are very familiar with that JAMA paper. But the paper that's probably more relevant for setting breakpoints is the CID paper that came out about three years later in 2021. And what the investigators realized is something I think all clinical microbiologists have known for a while, that doing susceptibility testing for Piptazo is really, really hard. It's a really hard drug to do susceptibility testing on. And a lot of the instruments that we use, including e-tests, which were recalled, a lot of the automated systems just are not that accurate. And so although the clinical labs in the study thought that these organisms were susceptible to Piptazo, when those organisms underwent a reference broth microdilution test, many of them were actually resistant. And it turns out where you saw the mortality really increase was anything over 16. So if the MIC was 32, there was, I think, a 10, 12-fold increase in the odds of death with Piptazo compared to Mirapenem. So that was the primary data that we went to. And that also spurred us to kind of review really a lot of PKPD literature. And I probably shouldn't speak too much about PKPD with this audience, with three pharmacists. But essentially, it seemed as if conventional dosing of Piptazo led to high probabilities of achieving targets, which for Piptazo, the main one is free time above MIC of at least 50% of the Piperacillin. Tazobactam is a little different, and that makes it a little bit more complicated. But usually with conventional dosing, when that denominator MIC is 8, you have a high probability of hitting those targets. But really to get to 16, you really need to give prolonged infusions where you can actually maximize that free time above MIC. Then the decision was, well, should 16 be intermediate? But I think most of us know that for most clinicians, I is equal to R, right? Um, and one of the things that we have to be careful at setting breakpoints is if we're too restrictive, that's going to lead towards more even broader spectrum antimicrobial use, right? So if we say that if we lower cephalosporin breakpoints or piptazo breakpoints too far, 
then that's going to lead to increased carbapenem use, which is sometimes a good thing, but sometimes not a good thing. So what we realize is that in this case, the I is really not for technical uncertainty. It's that, yes, you can achieve the targets that we think will be successful or predictive of success, but you really have to use a prolonged infusion. We didn't want to take it out of the hands of our providers who routinely use prolonged infusion, piperacil, and tazobactam for enterobacterolis. So that's sort of how we got to eight susceptible based on a kind of a standard dosage, 16 susceptible based on high dose prolonged infusions, and then 32, anything above 32 with that mortality signal in Merino is just resistant. So that's sort of where we landed. Awesome. Thanks. And then to clarify for the audience, so those dosing recommendations now for susceptible um, for that less than or equal to eight is 3.375 Q6 or 4.5 Q6 given over 30 minute infusions. And then for that susceptible dose-dependent recommendation out of 16, we're looking at 4.5 Q8 over a four-hour infusion or 4.5 Q6 over three-hour infusions to hit that target of 16. Um, Jim, anything to add from the CLSI perspective about Zosin and Enterobacterialis? Yeah, no, I think Mike hit the point that I, I really like to make is that I think that that follow-up paper was even more important because a lot of the people, a lot of folks after Marino were like, oh, it's a breakpoint problem. And it clearly wasn't. Um, when you look at that set. And I think it brings up really the concept that I think we all want to make sure our audience understands as we do this series is the variability within some of these MIC determination methods is not to be underestimated. And as you saw with Marino, can really result in some significant problems as far as interpreting data goes. And Piptazo is rough to work with. I don't think you'll ever run into a manufacturer who says, oh, we got we got Piptazo susceptibility testing down. It is a hard drug to work with. Is there a reason it's so challenging? I've never heard a good explanation. And I don't know if, if Mike or Jason have. Interesting. Yeah, I was told once, if you don't know the answer to something, say it's something about the stoichiometry. So I'm just going to say <laughs> something about the stoichiometry of Tazobactam. No, I don't know. Well, I just want to make one clarification point about the dosages that are tagged to CLSI breakpoints. They're actually not recommendations. They're not saying you have to use four and a half grams over three hours every six hours or whatever it might be. They're just telling you what this breakpoint, what the interpretation is based on. Obviously, people may decide that for their patient, you know, they want to give dose X and that's totally appropriate. But it's just explaining what that interpretation was based on. It's not actually a recommendation that, you know, that's what IDSA guidance documents are for or SITDP guidance documents are for. But it's telling you what the susceptible or in this case SDD interpretation is based on. So I just want to clarify that. That's a common misconception. And I think it's important to note for the audience also that it does reflect the dose that we felt was required to hit the PKPD targets that went into supporting that breakpoint decision. So, you know, it it's it's something that you definitely want to pay attention to. That's a great clarification. Thank you guys. And it does state that clearly. It says based on this dose for this breakpoint. So thank you for that clarification. Jason, talk to us about US Cast. What are you guys doing with Piperacil and Tazobactam and Enterobacterialis and why? Yeah, so I think that this is going to be the one where we differ the most. And what I want to just highlight is, again, shameless plugging. 
Um, go to our website. Tom Lodi's just presented this. His recording's on there. It goes into much more detail than I'm going to here. I'm going to hit the high points. He goes into detail of, of why we're doing what we're doing. We want feedback. These aren't set in stone by any stretch, so please do give us feedback. So I think that this is much more problematic than the, the pseudomonas conversation because the tazobactam becomes important. And we kind of tried to figure out how to address that. Jason, I'm going to stop you right there because I think that's really important what you just said. The tazobactam becomes important and Mike alluded to that too. And I want our audience to really understand this point that the tazobactam piece is important for enterobacterialis and not so much for pseudomonas. Can you explain that? So thanks for the clarification and making me better explain. I appreciate that. So so what I would say is that I, what Mike was talking about, and I think where all of the controversy comes into play, right, is the ESBL question. And in that situation, you do need the appropriate amount of tazobactam to restore the activity of the parent drug, right, to take care of that enzyme. In pseudomonas, it's different because although there are tons of beta-lactamases present, and in fact, beta-lactamases is one of the predominant mechanisms of resistance to piptazo and pseudomonas, tazobactam really doesn't inhibit it. And so it's not really an important piece of that story. So important to the Enterobacterales story, not really important to the pseudomonas story. Does that work, Aaron? Yes. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. Okay. So, so again, there's a couple of different things. Before we get into the ESBL question and how we're looking at addressing that, Enterobacterales is a lot of organisms, right? And it includes three notable organisms for us, and that's Enterobacter cloacae, uh, Klebsiella, formerly known as Enterobacter rogenes, and Citrobacter ferundi, where there is, and again, you can go to the IDSA guidance document for this as well, but there is concern for selection of resistance on therapy with a drug like piperacillin tazobactam. Again, piperacillin is labile to hydrolysis by the chromosomal AMPC-like beta-lactamases that are present. They are not inhibited by tazobactam. And really, we kind of look at piptazo very similar to how we look for ceftriaxone for these organisms, that there is a significant concern that if you give piperacillin, you have the potential to select for derepressed mutants and potential failure. And so for that reason, and the fact that there is a clinical signal that kind of supports this. So if you look at Merino 2, which was the same type of study that, that Mike just talked about, except this was focused on AMPC producing organisms instead of looking at ESBL, CLEB, and E. coli. If you look at Merino 2, it's a small pilot study. So again, don't overanalyze this. But if you look at the subset of patients that had enterobacter in that study, it's about 30 patients. The failure rate was about four times as high with piperacillin tazobactam compared to meropenem. And so, again, for us, that is supporting this concern for selection of derepressed mutants, potential clinical failure. And for that reason, for those organisms, we don't have a breakpoint because um, we don't think it's appropriate to use the drug in that situation. Again, Smart people will disagree. Smart people on this podcast might disagree, but that's kind of where we're at. So again, I would encourage you to look at the presentation and give us feedback. We're open to feedback on that. So I wanna carve that little piece out of this story. And then I wanna get into the other organisms, notably things like E. coli, Klebsiella, and Proteus. And, and for us, we, again, we it's a really challenging thing to address because Depending on presence or absence of certain enzymes, beta-lactamases, we have different kind of feelings. And, and, and I'm going to get into that, but, but the way that we were best able to kind of tweak this out, at least in our minds, and again, we look forward to your, your feedback, 
is we separate it out as a function of third generation cephalosporin resistance. And so we have one set of thoughts for third generation cephalosporin resistant isolates again, and we're kind of using that as a, a poor man's marker of ESBLs being present or third generation cephalosporin susceptible isolates, where we're kind of considering that to be, you know, obviously not being an ESBL in this situation. And again, for us, the reason we separate those two out is as we talked about before, the importance of tazobactam in one of those situations and maybe a lesser role of tazobactam in the other situation. And so to start off with the resistant isolates, or again, which would be the ESBL. So for ceftraxone resistant isolates, again, we don't offer a breakpoint because we think that the evidence supports that you shouldn't be using these agents in this situation. The two big pieces of that are, are the PKPD and the clinical once again. I agree with Mike on the PIP uh, uh, exposures. I think they're fine. But like I said, I think really the key determinant, at least what we feel the key determinant is really the right amount of tazobactam to restore those doses of PIP that we are given. And unfortunately, not a ton of work has been done on that. There's very limited evidence out there, but what's out there is really concerning. I won't get into all of the nitty gritty of that, but there are some studies, unfortunately, they aren't even published yet. That's how little data we're working with here. But there are some studies that suggest that there is a PKPD target for tazobactam to restore the activity of four grams every six of piperacillin. So again, that's the dose that we're giving of this drug. And if you kind of just apply what the targets are and you, and you do Monte Carlo simulation, all that, it's, it's really suggestive that the vast majority of, of ESBLs just can't be targeted. Really, the PKPD pace would put the breakpoint probably somewhere around two, and very few ESBLs have MICs of two or less. So that was one thing that drove us toward not having that. And the second is, is we actually interpret Merino a little bit differently. I think the CID publication is an important piece and an important addition to the story. But even with all of those caveats, what I would say is that I think Mike is right when he talked about how, you know, you can't reliably test an MIC and there were issues testing MICs. But for, from our perspective, that's the data that people are going to get. And so that's a piece of this story, right? So like they're not doing broth microdilution at their institution. And so if they're going to get inaccurate information, we kind of have to do it based off of that information. That's kind of our stance that we have to do it based off of that information that we're going to get. And so we looked at that a little bit differently. If you look at it, it's a really cool analysis that they do in the CID pub. And if you do the fancy cart analysis and all that stuff, it's, it's absolutely true. When the MIC was greater than 16, five out of 10 people died. Um, and so if you do a card analysis, that's what it's going to cut off, right? That's going to be its magical number that's going to come up. But if you just look at what's left, the mortality was still twice as high in the, in, in the Piperacillin tazobactam group. And for patients who had MICs less than or equal to one, the mortality was three out of 10. So it's very similar to that five out of 10. And so we actually, again, we didn't see that as being exculpatory evidence to, to let Piptazo off the hook. And so for us, when we look at that, we look at the preclinical, we just don't feel comfortable that Piptazo is appropriate for this. And so the way that we kind of make it to something that people could use is we separate it out into those third generation cephalosporin resistant isolates. There would be no Piptazo breakpoint. For third generation cephalosporin <laughs> susceptible isolates, we give it a very different kind of consideration. And so again, 
we're basically saying in that situation that Pip is the predominant player in that situation. And for that reason, our breakpoint recommendations are very similar to what CLSI just said. The one thing that I will note is that particularly for E. coli, Tazobactam is not irrelevant to this conversation. One of the problems is since piperacillin alone doesn't exist anymore, we don't have any contemporary data. I'm really talking about data from like 2007 to 2010. But if you look at PIP susceptibilities in E. coli, it's about 50%. It's really Tazobactam that drives that up to 97%. So we don't, we, we don't know, to be honest, in ceftriaxone susceptible isolates, whether or not PIP Tazo is appropriate. Because because again, I think Tazo is an important piece of that story. It's just when we talked about there being limited evidence in the ESBL space, there is no evidence in the non-ESBL but beta-lactamase producing isolate space. And so even though we have some concerns there, the thought process, at least how we kind of talk through it with ourselves, and like, again, I, I would again highlight that it's open feedback, so please give it to us, is that where Piptazo is being used when you're talking about third-generation cephalosporin susceptible isolates is empirically. And good stewardship, if, again, it comes back susceptible to all of these other drugs, there should be a de-escalation piece to that that's going to come. And so even though there are some tazobactam unknowns in that situation, we still felt comfortable with giving a breakpoint. Again, it's, it's very similar to what um, CLSI did. It's, it's a breakpoint of 16, and that's off of 4.5 Q6 as a three-hour infusion. Awesome. Thanks, Jason, for highlighting those important differences. So I guess in summary, no breakpoint for the known AMPC inducible resistance bugs, Enterobacter, Klebsiella, formerly known as Enterobacter, and Citrobacter frondii. No breakpoint really for ESBL producing isolates amongst the E. coli, Kleb pneumo, and Proteus world, and then a breakpoint of 16 for the, the ceftriaxone susceptible pathogens in the Enterobacter alice family. You mentioned that there's opportunity to comment on this, so we encourage our listeners to do so. What's the timeline? Because I want to now move into framing this for listeners of what, so what is the truth, so to speak? What do they need to do moving forward in their hospitals when they're taking care of their patients? We'll do USCAST first and then go to CLSI. So from USCAST, when does this comment period end? And then when do you hope to have the final proposal of what these breakpoints are for USCAST? Bye. Yes. And so this is next week's episode. So yeah, so there'll be plenty of time still to review this. So the it's a 60 day open public comment period. So that goes through April 30th. So you got plenty of time, but go take a look at the presentation. Again, give us all the feedback in the world. We will then take that into consideration. We'll meet with our membership, with our executive committee, and we will then finalize breakpoints after that, I would anticipate by the middle of the year, unless there are huge issues. Again, if everybody comes back to us and says, you know, we're insane, then we're going to have to potentially reassess that. So that's kind of our timeline. Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. And for our listeners, all, like I said, Dr. Lodiza's presentation, the rationale documents for these changes are available on USCAST as they are for CLSI. So from the CLSI standpoint, the Piptazo rationale document is published. The Piptazo enterobacterialis did get submitted to the FDA. The FDA has commented on it. That is also available online. The FDA rationale or response for their breakpoints the FDA is not accepting the susceptible dose dependent. They are going to use an intermediate instead for that 16. Jim and Mike, what do our listeners need to know about that then? Because we talked in episode one about how the FDA piece is very important because FDA approved AST panels are how most of us 
do susceptibility testing in our labs. And so this is final. This was in the M100 33rd edition, and the FDA has commented on it. So what now? So that's really kind of the $8 bazillion question, Aaron. <laughs> I only you know, ask the good questions. This is really kind of one of our one of our biggest challenges going forward is how do we how do we optimize harmonization with the FDA? Because as we've kind of alluded to, this to me is one of the is probably the challenge in the space right now. Because if we can't get on the same page with the FDA, the device manufacturers can't get anything cleared and nobody wins. You basically have a situation where you're unable to test. And perfect example for this is try to get an FDA cleared test for ethesium right now. It's basically for daptomycin. It's basically not out there because of the disagreement on the breakpoints. So I think there's the Piptazo interbacterale story is, is a mixed blessing. Am I disappointed uh, that they did not accept the SDD? Absolutely, because this is something that we have been working with them on for a prolonged period of time. In conversations, we've been encouraged that they thought they could potentially move in this direction. And we really thought that this was fairly clear cut, that it was a, a, a perfect use of the SDD definition at 16 to go to 4.5 Q6, uh, you know, as Mike had alluded to. And I'll let Mike speak to how he felt about it. But I, I was very disappointed to see that decision come down. The good news from my perspective is, is that the breakpoints have changed. And so if you want, what this will do is allow then the device manufacturers to move on Piptazo to these new breakpoints you're going to have I instead of SDD appear, but it will be with the same range. And then you have much more flexibility in working with your lab and your LIS support groups to change that reporting to SDD should you be so inclined. So I think, I would say it's, I don't know, Mike, I would say it's about a 75% win. What would you say? <laughs> I'm going to call it a win because I'm going to be optimistic. Excellent. But I just want to just clarify for the listeners you could work with your clinical micro lab tomorrow. In fact, you could have done this last year because they were really published in 2022 to implement the new breakpoints without any of the devices, without FDA approval and without any of the devices changing so long as your device actually goes down to a dilution of eight. So some do, some don't. But if your device currently reports out less or equal to eight as susceptible, you potentially could work with your clinical micro lab tomorrow, if you all agree that this was a priority for you, to start the validation process. So it doesn't preclude labs from doing the validation process, which involves 30 isolates that you get from the AR bank and doing susceptibility testing and see how they match up with the uh, CDC's AR bank. It doesn't preclude you from doing that and implementing these new breakpoints and using the devices off-label. So I just want to clarify that. That definitely is a possibility and something that you should consider as breakpoints get changed, you know, which ones that's worth doing. Of course, it would be easier if the devices could just get updated and you didn't have to use the devices off-label. So I don't want to say it's doom and gloom, like, well, who cares? The breakpoints were changed, but you can't do anything about it. Because potentially you could, but it's a decision obviously you have to make with your clinical microbiology colleagues because they're the ones who are going to have to do a lot of work to validate it. It's really important, as Mike points out, to recognize how low your panels go, to recognize what set of breakpoints your panels are working off of. And so many people out there who have no idea what is going on in that magic box that sits in their lab. 
Yeah. I think that's excellent points. Thank you both. And I think something we could probably all agree on, pharmacist and physician alike, is that you can also use this as a really exceptional opportunity to talk about dose optimization of beta-lactams. So now you have written down in both the FDA and the CLSI documents that prolonging infusions of beta-lactams is likely a good idea, especially in critically ill patients. And now you have something based on that mentality. And so you can Along with updating your breakpoints, we'd really encourage stewardship teams to have this conversation when updating annually your renal dosing charts and whatnot on should we be running our beta-lactam anti-pseudomonals at least over three, maybe four hours, which segues nicely into pseudo. So let's quickly touch on the pseudo breakpoints. I think these are a little more clear cut as we discussed. It's really the piperacillin that's the workhorse here, tazobactam, a little bit along for the ride, not as much of a player in the beta-lactamases produced by pseudo, but piperacillin, a, piperacillin alone, a potent anti-pseudomonal. So I guess let's go USCAS and then CLSI. Why not? Why not shake it up? So Jason, USCAS proposal for pseudo breakpoints. Yeah, this is pretty straightforward. There's, again, we talked about this in the last episode, right? We'd love to have great clinical data. We don't. We got a little bit and there are issues with it, but it's generally supportive of the PKPD, the MIC distributions. This one kind of plays a little bit nicely and our breakpoint is 16. And once again, predicated on 4.5 Q6 is a three hour infusion. All right, so USCAS pseudo breakpoint 16 slash four. I don't want to forget about the Tazobactam piece. Dose 4.5 grams every six hours as a three hour infusion. CLSI. So it's the same. Uh, which is nice. Yay! Um, See, that's why we ended with this. We love harmony. <laughs> the only difference that was made was that the intermediate range used to be 32 to 64, and now the intermediate range is yeah. just 32. And that intermediate range is, unlike with Enterobacterialis, is really to account for technical uncertainty. Essentially, very similar with the only change to the prior CLSI breakpoint is just bringing that intermediate range of just 32, so anything that's 64 and above is resistant. Thanks, Mike. That's helpful. And a good reminder, I don't think we explicitly stated this in our first episode or this one yet, so I will now and carry it forward that MICs that you see reported in your patient's chart are within one doubling dilution of error. That is the acceptable reported error. So when you see a four, it could be a two, it could be an eight. And that's very important for clinicians to keep in mind when we're deciding yes, no, or what dose to use, et cetera, which is why when drugs are safe, we typically err on giving the maximum tolerable dose, something Jason feels very passionately about, I know, because it could be a dilution higher, in, in which case you'd want to ensure you're getting adequate exposures. And those are for drug bugs that, that play nicely. Some of them are much worse than that. Right. I was going to oh. say, and Aaron, that's another myth, um, that within one doubling dilution, I'd just ask Mike and Ephesium. He wakes up screaming about that, I bet. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's when nice. you have... A, Dapto does not play nice, and there's a lot of other bug-drug combos that don't play within that one doubling dilution. Do they have a greater acceptable error range then for reporting? I actually didn't know that. Well, see, the, the issue is what where I would point you, and, and Mike, help me out here, because this is, this is not neither Mike nor I's favorite uh, areas, and we have people way smarter than us that help us in this area. Uh, but basically, when you look at the QC ranges on some of these things, you would be shocked and horrified by how much as you go from, and, and we're talking good labs who do this routinely. When you ship the bugs to different labs, you see three, four, five dilutions difference in some of these QC ranges, and it's very eye-opening. So I, I, that was going to be one of the myths that I came to eventually during this podcast series was that 
everything is within one doubling dilution. Yeah, when things play nice and things don't play nice. Well, happy to lead you to dispel that one. And that's only mildly terrifying for those of us that were not fully aware of that. Because that means essentially you're saying it could be a 0.5 or like an 8. In the M100. Yes. And just look, they're not all three dilution QC ranges. Some of them are much greater than that. And that's with the reference method. Yeah. And when we come to the epidemiologic cutoff value and cutting into that, that will be a lot of the discussion that emerges at that point. Oh boy. So much fun to be had. That's a good teaser to wrap up this episode and get everyone excited for next Friday. Um, but before we close out, anything else our audience should know about Pipercil and Tazobactam and the updated breakpoints for Enterobacterolis and Pseudomonas? I think the other thing to point out, we're talking a lot about MICs, but as Mike pointed out earlier, there have been a lot of recalls with various gradient diffusion panels, et cetera. We also updated the DISC criteria, which is an amazing fallback if you're not able to currently use your automated system. That's a great point. Thank you so much. All right, guys. Well, this wraps up our discussion on PIP-TAZO. Please tune in to Breakpoints next week for the third episode in our Breakpoints series, where we'll be talking all about the aminoglycosides. And with that, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist podcast. This episode was hosted by Aaron McCreary, and Breakpoints was created by Julian Justo, myself, and Jason Pogue, one of our panelists here today. This episode was produced by Dr. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard, and it was edited by the one and only Dr. Jillian Hayes. Our production team includes Dr. Veronica Zafant and Dr. Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Dr. Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke, and this episode was peer-reviewed by Drs. Crystal Hodge and Dr. Eileen Ahaskali. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.